Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey folks, DJ here. I just want to take some time to talk about Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliations by Flyles Games. This soon-to-launch game is brought to you by the same team that's bringing you Vampire the Masquerade chapters, and they just released a trailer to go along with it. We at 25 invite you to check it out at werewolfthepocalypse-retaliation.com to catch a peek at the trailer and be updated of when it'll appear on Kickstarter, which seems to be early 2022. The game promises to have everything that made chapters endearing to us, the fans, including scenarios, investigations, beautiful miniatures, and more. With that, thanks for your time. Welcome, folks. Uh, today we're diving right back into Werewolf. It's been a while. Uh, sorry about that, but uh, you know some other books came out that were... Definitely in demand, like the Sabat book which for V5, which took a while to get through. Please refer to our website to catch that or wherever you typically download our, our pods for that. And thank you for listening. Uh, but we're going to get into Rage Across the Appalachians. It's the first dead book, if memory serves. And uh, it's doing well. It's a 1995 book for Werewolf. And uh, co-hosting with me today, um, we have, of course, Nick, who's been with me since the beginning of the Werewolf journey. Welcome, Nick. Yep, can't seem to get rid of me can't at all he looks very dreary when he said that too like it just it's that's where he just is chained and <laughs> chained to this microphone i love the energy of his voice <laughs> nick's like i'm not dead yet bob and <laughs> <laughs> as always of course we have brennan uh welcome brennan thank you uh, we couldn't keep brennan off this podcast because he why brennan out of curiosity reads across the appellations what, what what was so important to you about this one why Oh, I can't imagine. This is the only book that has ever had like a, a setting near where I live. It is, uh, uh, it's near and dear to my heart, at least. I couldn't miss this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the setting. Interesting recovery with an interesting response. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, so, folks, as you understand, Werewolf and what we've been doing so far, we've been kind of going over and trying to dispel uh, myths, legends, stuff that you heard, stuff that you didn't, you know, sort of things we were told. And, but we were kicked around in this direction. I remember this distinctly. These were friends who said, stay away from the Rage Across the Apocalypse, or uh, po- Rage Across the Appalachians. Don't do it. And I said to myself, why? Right? It's like, I mean, it's part, it's one of the books. We're going to hit to it. We're going to get to it. I mean, we did Mexico, right, for Vampire. Yeah. We can agree that was a, uh, <laughs> but it, it was done and it's there. We've, we've talked about Samuel Hate, right? Yep. <laughs> right? That's, that's done. Why wouldn't we do this book? Well, what it comes down to, and we're going to get to part of this. We're not going to make this all thing. We're going to warn you off the bat. For some of you, there will be some triggering topics we're going to tiptoe around. And by triggering, we're going to read to you some of it. We're going to discuss some of what we read in the book, I should say. We're not quoting to you a lot of this book at all, in fact. We're just what we got from it, what we think of it, how we might use it or do it differently if we liked it, or you know, maybe just found it and not for us. And that's what you're going to hear from us. If you're expecting a stance politically... On any of this, let me make this clear. Uh, here at 25 years, we absolutely do not agree with some of the travesties and the the just tragedies uh, that happened in the past. And that's it's that simple. We don't side with it any more than anybody else does, right? It's not something that you hear a lot of. What do I mean by that? Well, and this book tries to has an interesting way to talk about the Trail of Tears, for instance. And it uses the Trail of Tears in here for, um, I don't know if you want to say, that's a tough way to term it out. I mean, what I will say is they just used it to tell you that the werewolves had departed it 
Mm-hmm. But then it almost diverts from it a little bit. Like they tell you exactly what it is, but it doesn't hit with the impact as if you went and actually looked up the Trail of Tears. Now, this is a far departure from typically what you've seen the company do this far, where you know what happened in the real world, and then the fiction would be far worse. Well, I agree with the with the author here in that they're really how bad could you make it other than the reality that it is? Like we could just take that for a moment. If you don't, if you don't agree with me, just go ahead and pause, look up the Trail of Tears, and read it, and let me know how you feel. Right? Because we live in in an era now where you can get just factual, hardcore data about what it was, and then go and look up this book and see what you think from it. What we found was it was interesting opinions. Now, why I start there is because I told you it's a warning, and that's just the taste of some of the some of the terms in here. Also, I want to highlight this. Your imagery of the South is going to be not challenged here, but they do go into stereotypes. It's very much a part of what you're going to see over here and in this book. Their goal was not to inflame you. It was not to insult you. It was not to belittle. It was to point out that these stereotypes come from somewhere and some of them are in this region with their own dialect and uniqueness to it. And there's no soft way to approach that. You're going to read them in the book and you're going to think one way or the other. How do I know? You guys have already pre-sent me I don't. I will say it. Hate mail about this book related to those topics. I've read them diligently. I went back to look up some of the points, and not all the points I agree with. Some of them I do see your issue, but fearlessly, um, we're going to go through and just talk about it because I think as adults, as this podcast, we could talk about it without being uh, hurtful, without being. Uh, that's a term I use, attackative, meaning our goal is not to trigger you. In fact, quite the opposite. We want to bring you to a neutral point tell you what the book used it as, whether or not how we felt about it, our feelings being valid because there are feelings, and then from there, we'll let you draw your own conclusion. With that, we're going to begin um, talking about a, a very good part of this. I know both uh, Nick and Brennan love the intro story, and if you could, um, Nick, tell us about this intro story, and then Brennan, just round it out as to why you liked it. So this... Uh... This intro story is called Spirit Messengers, and it, it roughly runs the tale of a, of a wizened old lady uh, kind of dragging the kids out on the front porch and telling them uh, stories of, uh, you know, different people who, uh, who came across and, and where they come from and the origins of their people. And the whole time, there's kind of like a, another gathering of adults kind of, you know, like in the house, you know, and playing their songs and, and you know, just raucousing and doing doing what adults do late at night having a good time and uh you know and and she's just kind of minding the kids while this is happening um but one particular child seems to be a little bit distant you know Uh, it's kind of like a a little bit separate from the rest of them they're all kin and uh and and this girl you know they they play a little game where they where they all just to silence the kids right it's a clever old lady trick she says hey all right everyone hush up now and tell me what you hear you know, so they all they all listen in to try and like hear the sounds of nature, and they start naming it off. You know, and, and little girls like I hear wolves, and they're like, hey, no wolves out there. You know, and uh, <laughs> and and you know, and like, and it kind of cues that the grandmother also heard the wolves. You know, and that was like supposed to be her little secret, uh, but somehow this kid seems to have cued up on that. And then, uh, you know, and she goes through and she tells the story, and uh, and later that night, you know, as everybody's winding down and going to bed. Uh, the girl comes to her room, you know, I guess seeking comfort, uh, whatever it is. You know, she's in a she's in a confused time. She's got a an auspicious way about her currently. 
and uh, and the grandmother is, is kind of recounting uh, this tale of her of her husband long dead now long gone you know about uh you know how he would be out in the uh, in the meadow in the glade you know just out the window you know and she saw a pack of wolves out there one time and he was there with them and uh and you know she had the door or the window boarded up cuz it was getting close to close to the colder season you know and and she says to the grandchild you know go ahead and open the open the window and the kid looks out there and you know almost feels like there's something out there waiting for her not quite sure how to explain it you know and the grandmother you know like remembering the words of her long past husband um you know like realized that she had uh, a duty almost to guide this child into what would be the next life though she had no idea what it was and uh and she just kind of tells the child you know like uh you know uh if, if you could go go check at the front door and uh you know, and make sure it's locked, you know, and, and knowing full well that the child would, would go to the front door and leave the house and, and go on to her next life, whatever it was going to be. Um, and part about this, that the story that, that kind of like weirded me out is it's the first time they, uh, they really like break down a story of, uh, of a young werewolf that seemingly isn't like caught by other werewolves you know that she hasn't gone through a change yet but she feels this draw this compelling need to go to this this other home that's almost drawing her near it's not a kinfetch spirit that that alerts people to her or anything like that it's almost uh it's the first time you really see like like maybe a, a sense of a of a new home and this uh this uh like loneliness that that they that guru feel when they're among human people even their own families that they feel like they don't belong there and it, it really hammers that home and i thought it was really great just for that that alone what do you think brendan the reason i really like this story is because it um it reminded me a lot of like growing up with with my family right this this was one of the first stories where i was like i could actually relate to it it's setting was something I was somewhat familiar with. You know, I didn't grow up like in the mountains, like off like uh, that isolated as they're described in the, in the story. But a lot of this stuff shines shines through. There were small aspects of it that I could actually like relate to in in my upbringing, which is um, uh, something that struck me to it. I also liked it. Um, uh, the other bigger thing is this was one of the first stories. Uh, kind of like what Nick was saying, though I had a slightly different take on it. This seemed as though this was um, this was the story of a of a guru who was being guided back to the guru by kinfolk. When in the story from the description the grandmother told me, I thought the grandfather was a guru, right, or at least a kinfolk in the know, and that through even though he had passed on in whatever way like that family like legacy was still being like passed down and like guided in a very like grandmotherly way. Yeah, I don't think that's I, an I extrapolation agree. at all. I, I think that's exactly what it was. And uh, the, the, the story itself is a good intro for what, what has going on. And it goes on from there, right? A great intro kicks off uh, to kind of going over to some sources of, uh, of note. Um, I wasn't originally going to mention this, but I am now just a uh, surprise. Just <laughs> talked about it. Uh, there's, there's a paper I came across where someone wrote about the actual uh, lack of writing about women in the Appalachians, right? When, when you mentioned the idea, the concept of Appalachia, it's uh, it's almost that the women are second to it or non-existent, as the author put down there. She's, this young lady did, some, did a paper 
uh, that went in depth on it, consulting history and all that stuff. They got some accredita- accreditation for it. And uh, I'll make sure I kick that over. You guys can look up the paper if you want to after this. So I won't kill time on it. But it did make a great point. It said in the Appalachians, we forget that it's not about just the guys who go off to war and the sons who go and do all the stuff and, and everything else and that the women just sit home and breed. That's not, it's not the impression you want to get. And this opening story hits that home. And I think it's a subtlety that folks forget that, you know, her, he died. And so it was up to the grandmother to guide uh, the new blood to where they got to go. And she accepted it, right? It's just the way of life. It's just what had to be done. I think that phrasing kind of describes the Appalachian uh, way of life as well as uh, down south from everything you've read or note. They don't get to complain, right? There's nothing. And when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. That doesn't mean you run to the store and buy mm-hmm. it in a jug, right? That's the that's the part you're missing. And that's and I kind of it's hammered home there in that story. And I, and I just want you to keep that in your mind when you think of this book as you go through it. Now, I also want you to remember it's 1995. Now, why I say that, not because we're going to go down through a trip in the magic bottle. You know, I myself was still in high school then. Um, but what we are going to say is the fact that 95, when I, I lived in Mountain Home, Arkansas, what the North thought about, my Chicago relatives called us Hicks. Mountain Home is like the most northern part of Arkansas, mm. right? We're right by the Missouri border, right? We're a dry county. It's the Bible Belt. Yeah, but like, you know, they're like, you're Hicks. Yeah, Interesting. These Hicks had a Chinese restaurant and a damn good one. We also had the same movie theater you could go to. And he po- it wasn't like we were thrown back to Bagot Rocks and doing whatever. However, mm-hmm. we did live on a farm. You know, we did supplement some of the, the food we got, you know, income-wise with uh, with the plants we grew and used them. And that's what I mean by that. A lot of families did it. A lot of the families, that was what they did uh, for their, their income and career. And they could because of the land they have. And it was pretty cool to see that mix. Of modern meets, you know, tradition in that regard. However, even in those areas and those parts, I remember a big stickler that you don't talk about. We in school, it was even like very hands off, and it came to the Native Americans. You know, it was always the black guy, wrong part. Like even slavery was more talked about than we could about Native Americans and what had occurred. In fact. We had to take field trips quite frequently to go to specific sites that were Native American heritage sites to see what whose land it was. And I underlined that in the past and that the people who tended this did so with a level of respect and what can they do. And so they tried to, you know, keep these places open to let folks know there's a terrible history here. We'll let your teacher tell you about it, but understand that. So maybe you come back, go home, ask your parents or whatever. So in other words, nobody wanted to talk to the kids about it. And so you were just kind of whatever. I expect you, the listener, to be in even more of the dark, right? Typically, it's 2021. If you didn't hear about it on the news, if it wasn't in a video game, you know, and if your teacher didn't force you to look it up for a paper, do you really know about it? Here's that rare point where hobby meets that history. And you actually can't even get into this book without actually knowing of some of the events that happened here. And that's, that's the point we're going to get into. So before we jump all downhill, uh, I want to, uh, when I say downhill, is get into it. Not that it's bad. But uh, at the top here, I want to finish setting it up. We have a point here we're going to hear some terms. One of them is uh, hillbilly. This term is used in this book. They do tell you what it's about. It's relating to uh, the author's attempting to elicit a commonly used trope term in your mind about what they're talking about, referring to hill folk, or what I like to think, people who live off the land. 
They do not feel they need your internet. They do not feel that some, some places they don't even need your electricity. The land provides them everything and they own that land they have for generations and that's how they still care for it. And she's trying to make that connection. Um, out of curiosity, Brentron, since you're still in the neck of the woods, do you still, do you, do you know of anybody who does that? Because like, for instance, I know on Mountain Home, you'd have people who would grow their own food and they would show up uh, to sell it at certain county fairs and whatnot and you would trade with them. What went out like wouldn't accept money, but would accept trade if you had like what what, what they were looking for. Some instances, cash was king, but that's mm-hmm. just how it went. No, yeah, I, I know a lot, um, and it's it's in um, it's also in like surprisingly urban places, like where I used to live up in Nashville, like on off of Percy Priest, which is in Davidson County. It's still in Nashville, the city. Like my neighbor down the road had like a horse farm, not a horse farm, but he had horses like gated in and he would sell and barter for like different like farm equipments for a farm he owned or like the family owned like farther down the way. My own like aunt still has a uh, more like a ranch, but they will commonly like trade for like instead of just like right. paying money for groceries, they'll pay for like slices of um well you know just supplies food and, and it's kind of stuff good and uh to to kind of elaborate on your like uh your actual we don't need your internet comment that's that's also incredibly common around here like outside of like where i grew up like in between there in murfreesboro and nashville there's still large swaths of this area that doesn't have access and to what this book and- doesn't get into that i'm going to tell you i'm going to add to is that, uh, and maybe it's so sensitive for the company, I'll help you out. Why would they do that? Well, it comes simply down to this. These, it, historically, the, especially South, and particularly after certain wars, you, you couldn't trust certain sales folk that came around. They would lie to you. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it scoured relationships so bad, like burnt uh, the Northerners to Southerners, that it just, you know, carpetbaggers, you can look that up, and that's one common way. But the way I was told was actually less hostile. And it was more that it came down to this. That whenever you hear a man wagging his tongue on a television and he's telling you all sorts of things and you can't make sense of a thing he's saying, that's because he's trying to trick you into something. Because if he isn't saying anything you can understand, then he isn't saying anything worth listening to. And were that simple, you must understand there is a simple logic to how that works. It's simple because it is and because it works. There's a moniker we've used around these parts. It's called keep it simple, stupid. It's the kiss method. You know, somebody tried to abduct this method and call it a life hack, right? And just, just use that term if you need to hear it another way. But they are kind of where I've heard it first was down south. And that mentality I've always enjoyed, right? I'm not always good at it. In fact, if you've listened to this podcast, pretty much I extrapolate quite a bit. But I do that to capture different ways of learning, right? Different ways people may be digesting this. And people like Nick and Brennan and whoever, I bring them on to help hit those angles as well. But on this, I'm trying to make sure that we get down pat that when you hear Moonshiner mention, if you're offended by that, we're just referring to people who make moonshine or ran moonshine, as it's mentioned in the book. If you're, uh, in other words, toward the author's context, which is, you know, it drives a picture in your brain. We all know of those areas. You've heard of them in movies or saw it or whatever. That's what she's trying to do. But she's also trying to do something, and that's immerse you in the Appalachians. And I think she does a damn good job of drawing those images to you. Um, what would you think? Either one of you, actually. 
Uh, no, I wholeheartedly agree with that. There is a large chunk of this book that goes into great depth describing like the 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 pervasive beauty of the of the mountain ranges specifically because not uh, Appalachia isn't all mountains, right? But the the scope of the Great Smokies in particular, uh, like was, was captured in my mind, and it was um, uh, in in the descriptions she gave of the setting, it it clicked in my mind. Like, of course, they'd make a rage across you know Appalachia book because of it right i don't think you can um the the historical and like natural impact of this area is is undeniable and the thing about it in here you know we take notes for a podcast whenever we go through to look at them and uh, one of the things is the immensity you know the size of what they're talking about um but other than talking about it from like a, a research point nick we drove like through the appalachians didn't we yeah yeah we uh we drove through the ozarks and the appalachians um, and, uh, and to me, they just kind of look like big hills. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, it, it, maybe I wasn't in the, I didn't go into the, like the Smoky Mountain National Park or any area like that. Um, we have something in Western Wisconsin called the Driftless Area. Uh, it's just areas that the icebergs didn't scrape clean off the earth. And, and those, I look very familiar to, uh, to kind of what I saw when I was driving through the Appalachian areas same steep windy roads and everything like that down into hollers um we call them hollows um but what is a holler a hollow is mm-hmm. just a kind of the space in between hills so uh if, if you have a bunch of hills you drive down in there 90 percent of the time there's a, there's a creek or a river down there because all the wash off the off the hills goes down through there but that that's a hollow mm-hmm Interesting, interesting descriptors, right? Yep. And uh, why I love this is because a lot of you probably walked through places like that and just went, oh, man, it's super hilly, so tired, or something of that nature, right? Or pulled over the side of the road, saw what it was, beautiful, beautiful land. But also she tried to interject with, as this immersion is there, you need to imagine that this is all Gaia, right? That's what it is, but it held a deep, dark secret. And she and she lets that go, right? She's like deep dark, right? We're not even referring to the people here yet, just as much as the land itself. Yep. Now, in addition to this, she also paints a picture that the weaver cometh. And that that's all the deforestation, chopping through, paving the roads, connecting these major cities, the creation of these major cities, one to the other. But there's a thing we can't miss. Because she describes what happens when you have indigenous people, which are the Native American tribes that are here, and these settlers show up. And kind of come out of the blue. And in this understanding, there's a time in America where you did have a lot of settlers come in that were all, everyone's an immigrant, right? We know this, <laughs> right? If you are um, descended from the Irish, Scottish, British, French, what have you, you're not from America. That's just how it is. And that's pretty much at this point, the melting pot of everybody. And uh, that's that's what goes on. Well, America, before it exploded in populace as it was getting there, it was running out of land where they were in these settlements that became cities and were slowly budding. And, you know, our wise forefathers um, told them, hey, get the hell out of here. <laughs> You're here choking resources. Go, <laughs> go, go west, go south, go anywhere but here and make your fortune. <laughs> and that's why when you hear that phrase, give us your, uh, you're tired, you're hungry, you're poor, and we have the land of opportunity. Opportunity is the key thing. You had to go somewhere to become something and make something of the land to be tradable, what have you. Really something they could tax, but we'll leave that where it is. But this is what happened to that area that she wants to focus on the Appalachians, right? You had 
natives that were settled there that were fine. And the first wave of settlers had land to share. And so they made peace with who was there initially. But like anything, you know, that well, what happened here, it's, it's a classic case of the natives gave an inch and a mile was taken. Yep. Right? This is this is what mm-hmm. occurred. There's another sticky thing you're going to read in here, and it just, just like super triggered me. It's when they got here, it's it's something about, you know, they, they already had slaves. The native populace did. So when the settlers get here and they have slaves and they know what they are, but none of the settlers could afford them, right? That originally came here, but like, huh? And they're looking like, oh yeah, we have them. What's the big deal? Slaves were treated differently as they had. And in fact, that's a term I feel was historically slapped on it. And they kind of had a, had a different way about it. Like, let me explain. To the native tribes, they warred like anybody else, right? Warred for resources and lands and whatever. And when a side lost, they didn't just execute them. Although I'm certain if the people were that violent that they wouldn't see reason, you had to do what you had to do. But to those who were kind of there and begrudgingly were doing whatever they could, we'll call it held out hope, they would give time for them to acclimate. In other words, they would make them do menial labor and other things they didn't want to do. And that's that's what they did. And they forced them to do it, I guess you could say. And over time, though, it was to fold them in the tribe to replace the warriors they lost from warring with that original tribe. Now, I say it like that, makes sense to your brain. Oh, okay. That's sure. Close enough culturally, but not agreeing on what should be done. That's why they weren't in the first place. Okay, move on. Well, when the natives saw that, the, okay, here's some settlers and then some rich settlers started coming in the area and they brought their African slaves and people noticed that, wait a minute, the natives had African slaves too. What's going on here? And you learned that, okay, cool. You have to look that up further. They don't go in depth to read it here other than to say they already had African-American slaves, right? So to speak. Or I should say African slaves brought to America should be the distinction. And they were a commodity traded for like anything else. But what they get into when you read about it, and it's important you do, is that what they're saying is with the settlers who came here and brought their way of life and the cultures mixed, you can't look at them to the negative, anybody really in that era, because the world was accepting that this is just what you did. Right? It'd be like it'd be like us gazing at Rome and trying to cast dispersions because that the slave trade was everything in Rome back in the day. Look in your history book. It simply was. They had more slaves owned than they had people that were actually Romans. And that's, that's, you know, it's a shock. It's a bad time. But guess what? It happened again and it happened over here. Now, to the natives, mm-hmm. this was a double-edged sword. Because what happens is you mix the settlers, people start getting pissed off. Understand this tension. Because I think the author kind of left something on the table here. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to get this off my chest real quick. And here it is. It's as you have so many people coming in here and seeing how good the natives have it, because their tribes have been here forever, working the land, easier time. And they're kind of trading for knowledge, you know, show me how you hunt better out here. I have no idea. We're trying to get our sheep land going or whatever. Help us out. Sure, I will. But, you know, I'll send my guy around to to set you up and we'll know. And the settler's thinking, I wish I had a guy. I can't afford it. But what they're doing is they're sending complaints back to the main office that sent them out here. And when enough of them send complaints, you basically get the government going, well, we can do something about that. And it's ramping up to the tragedy of the Trail of Tears. It's that simple. Right. That's that's the pressure that's going on here because you have more settlers and want more land. They see the natives for whatever reason is being in the way. And I'll let you look that up. Of course, we understand why I do not want to get in that other than for you to, to understand. The author has a term here. Where she talks about the worm was like waiting, was already in the land and was just biding its time. I feel 
maybe, and I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt, that uh, what she's referring to by the worm is there's a lot of hate from the tribes warring that were over here. Good resources, it happened, rise, sunrise, sunset, but they did have slaves, so that wasn't a good thing. So maybe that's what was going on already had occurred. And then when the settlers started coming here with the alienation and diaspora, they also bring, well, the worm itself, as it said. And we know this from, you know, previous books talking about worm comers, right, in quotations. And so this is all now mixing and giving window for this to rise because we know the weaver comes, strip mining starts, deforestation occurs, bad things begin happening. And that's the powder keg of the Appalachians. Now, why this theme is here, because what she is building is a story for you to be able to decide at whatever point you want to bring in your players, whether it's in the beginning or in the modern or even the 95 when this was made out, wherever you want to do, that you have to hold true to the history that's here and understand it enough to speak to it to build a story that doesn't break immersion. Because the feeling she's eliciting is that you can get tricked. Right. And then and this feels immersive. Like you believe you said it, Brent, and I could feel almost at home and talking about that intro story. But then Nick also mentioned that alienation yeah. that's there, too. And it felt very guru-esque. I agree. But I also think that it can be more sinister. Like, like a lot of this could be that, OK, here you are. You're learning the land. She knows what's there. She knows what's going out there. But what if that old woman know whatever claimed her husband might be out there still? And there's nothing she could do about it. But you know your daughter's got a bit of the blood to her, but maybe the- you know, and it's, it's the only thing you hope is that she can go and handle it, mm. right? That's that's all you can do is let it loose because she can't talk to her about what she is. She doesn't know how to contain that exactly. She's going to let her go. But as you said, Nick, where's the kinfetch spirit there? Right now, it's weird the kinfolk is kind of shuffling her out the door, but out to what? And the author mentions in here that the Appalachians have old gods. But when you mention the worm was here, there was some sort of struggle here before, even before the settlers, amongst the native populace. It's interesting. And I think back to what we covered before, Nick, and you actually hinted at this too before we started, talking about the difference between uh, the pure ones and the actual Native American tribes. Can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't even think that it, that it's that. It, it's people lose focus on that, right? So, um, you know, because the pure ones came over, with the tribes and, and all these people and uh you know they, they started this uh you know this this big walk across the land bridge but the confusion always comes in well then clearly all these native tribes are just part of the pure ones right so at some point we just chop them all up right these guys are croatan and these guys are are tuna uh, uh, uktena uh these people are wendigo and so on and so forth but that's not necessarily the case when you think about the pure ones the pure ones are a band of guru and their kinfolk now their kinfolk can mingle in these tribes and and they often do and it's often you know like in future books they go over in great detail which of these tribes they often mingle with and where those bloodlines kind of push through but it's not the same thing and the tribe's not necessarily the same thing as the pure ones these are still people that do people things and are susceptible to people problems. Um, the, the part where it gets shaky is, uh, is you've got kinfolk mixed in there as well. Uh, and that, that bears in a responsibility directly to the pure ones or the, you know, the, the guru tribes that, that came over with them. I think that distinction is important. I mean, absolutely. As you said it, um, there's a lot we hear, right? And the author kind of, I mean, she, she addresses it to me clear as day. She talks about the fact that the Uctena tribe were here as well. 
and the Utena were with the native already. Mm-hmm. But she makes a distinction between the Utena tribe and the Native American tribes. Yep. And that the Utena were basically like brother wolf or spirit wolf. They weren't aware of werewolves. They sat back and watched the Native American tribes have their war. They intervened where they could to kind of be referees to it, but basically lazily protected them. Let it go. Because all the Utena cared about is the Cairns are protected because that's all they're there to do. Yep. But they didn't see a need for the Impergium because of it. Right? Yeah. There was, there was enough land for everyone. Mm-hmm. They respected it great. They thought they were cool in the gang. And this is where back in a, in a previous podcast we talked about, there was a respect the native peoples already had, a union with Gaia. And because of that, the werewolves were like, cool, we're here. And that's one of the reasons they did adopt a lot of their ways. And I, I need you to understand this. The Utena and Wendigo adopted the ways of the Native American tribes they chose to use as kinfolk. Right? That's where they took a lot. Not from any one tribe, all of them that they commingled with helped make the culture they have and where they're at. In a lot of ways, they're honoring what they had. So they, cause, cause I think the authors are smart. They weren't trying to make it insulting whatsoever. Now I know what, what, what you try not to be insulting, you tend to, you can't please everyone. I'm just going to say that. And you're going to make a war wherever you're going to mm-hmm. find it. I think you're doing a mistake here because if you make that war, you're forgetting the fact that who they're calling the pure ones is what the, the werewolves arrogantly call themselves. Yeah. Right? That's what's going on. And Nick brought up a hot point. I'm going to steal it here and please jump in, Nick, whenever you like. That this book is really about the werewolves dropping the ball. Is what it's coming down to. And and where are we talking about? The Uctena were here. They saw the settlers that came and knew they were bringing the worm with them. And sensed it. And, And she even goes so far as to say the worm was already in the ground here. Waiting and doing its thing. Mm -hmm. And I guess the Utena were doing what they could, but when you saw the advent of the others coming in, did the Utena call for help? Did they send out to the Guru Nations, hey, we're, you know, this is this is bad, look what's going on, we could use your assistance? Right. It's it's not there. Why? It, it, and this and this becomes a big like you want to say plot hole, I wonder if something more sinister. It's a it's a big question. It's a big question that definitely needs to be answered. Right? So the three brothers came over. Um, you know, and, and they arrogantly believed that, you know, they had, they had something that nobody else could possibly have that the defeats that happened in Asia and Europe and Africa were not going to be what they were susceptible to because they were the pure ones. They had all these kinfolk and these tribes and they, they had found unique and interesting ways to be messengers to the dream speakers and different uh, members of these tribes so that they, you know, maintain their union with Gaia. But even still, these tribes fought amongst each other and, and that that taint on the land isn't uh, is isn't missed, right? They they just they just chose to for you know like ignore it to just let it go past you know because that's we're still you know arrogantly better than the rest of these. We still have you know a better group of kinfolk than the rest of these come. And when the when the ones from Europe came over, and and they saw what was happening and they they saw what they were dealing with. They had obviously their own issues that they brought with them, their own, uh, you know, like uh, the classism and, 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 and racism and, and everything else that comes over with people that are meeting new people that don't understand their ways, right? But uh, both sides immediately then like looked at each other and, and said, well, you're the issue here and, and, and totally ignored 
what was actually happening, which is all these people that they brought with them, their kinfolk, and the people that came with them as the settlers, started immediately chafing against each other the same way they were, right? So, yeah. and 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 they and they they dropped the ball in, in the simple fact that it was their responsibility to keep these people taught in the ways of Gaia to shepherd them, right? Once they said the Impergium's done, they said, now we're going to teach them the ways of Gaia. And at this point, nobody was teaching anyone the ways of Gaia. Instead, they were fighting over their own cairns in a very selfish way. Because the Uctenna said, you don't understand this land. We know our cairns best. Everyone else said, well, you don't know the worm. We know the worm. It's here, and it's a big problem. And you're not strong enough to defend it. And instead of sitting down and seeing reason across both sides, they fought. And just as they fought, their kinfolk fought. And just as their kinfolk fought, those who came with them fought. That's where There's, the worm came in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, you can say Calamity Worm is part of that. Urge Worm of Corruption, certainly. And uh, and, and worse. But I'm, I'm going to add something here I think is cool. That thrown in here is these hill folk. These hill folk retreated. Right? And what I mean by that. They came in and see all this madness when people are trying to grab up land. And this is like a first settler mentality. Their families had already traded with the natives and had permission to be here. They made that peace. The natives gave them where they could stay. And they didn't say it was forever, but better you than who's coming behind you. You know, big baggy bunny guy and, you know, whatever. So there's some of that. But just as many circumstances they were given permission to stay, there were some who said, I'm staying by the gun and, and did nefarious things. But I want to focus on the positive here that there were positive relations culturally that you saw that did develop here. And so you get some um, families that were able to stay and actually work the land well and stay out of harm's way by doing so and dodging some of this madness that starts to develop near these settlements. And But they're in very remote places. And they're given an actual negative connotation by the people that are in the cities. And why I want to point this out, I saw this all the way back in 95 myself in the, in the high school I was in. That town was very big and making a, on, on a welcoming people. But if those people were northerners, my own family who came up from the north, like, gave shit to us for where we were, right? Because I can talk with an accent if mm -hmm. I want, but this is not my natural tone. And it depends. I'll be around Brentron a little too long, and you'll see me fall back in my Arkansas ways. Wait, wait. That's not <laughs> heard... true. That's not true. Brennan, do, do southerners really hate northerners? Um, Yeah. <laughs> all right well never mind <laughs> now what now what, now what i'm gonna say what i'm gonna say is that what they hate mm -hmm. is important to focus on right it's not that they hate you because you're from up north that's the short way to say it there's a hate that you do not respect their way of life where it came from what they've been through and respect how they live mm -hmm. When you come down there and say you know a better way, you know more info, and you talk your big city talk, and you talk too fast, and you got slick movements and your internet and your yeah, well, internet everybody has now, but you get my you get my point that you have such advantages in the north where you're at, and you hillbillies down here don't know uh, what you're gonna get is an immediate like you're a rude mm -hmm. person, quite rude. And if you are rude down south, you want to talk about where place you're unwelcome, and you will be made to feel unwelcome right quick. That's the way to do it. And so you're taught to be humble if you're from up north and you go down south. Now, there's derogatory ways. I've heard it said, when you go down south, be careful. They're still sore about the war they lost. <laughs> that, that's a way to dumb it down when you don't know what the hell you're talking yeah. about. Right? Um, that, that's, that's like, 
I won't even give an analogy to it except just being meaner. But the, the point to focus on is then in this book, that's not what they're trying to drive home, right? They're trying to drive home the fact that there is a beauty to people who know how to live off the land, in particular from a guru perspective. Like to uh, to us here, to the modern folk, as they say, you may – actually, I'd, I'd, probably a lot of you have no clue how to hunt. Or, or scavenge or live off the land or how to make a fire, clean meat, cook for yourself in that regard and live and actually survive. This is not the case for Southern kids. Most of them. In fact, when me living down there 10 years, I picked up some stuff and they taught me how to, how to, how to be, how to handle it. Because you don't know anything if you don't know how to do some of the basics. And so they're going to go through and make sure these traditions stay alive. And there's an oral tradition there. There is... The, the older male mentality, which is the older male amongst them, typically when you go out hunting or walking or hiking or whatever in the woods, almost always a hunter, almost always making sure you're damn well going to respect the land you walk on. That's, that's lesson one. It's not because he's Native American trained either, mm. right? That's another northern misconception. And it has everything to do with the fact that enough damage has been done to the land you should respect it because the land takes care of you if you take care of it. It's that simple. And that's, and that's how it works. Now, does it work that way always? No, but that's definitely what I saw when I was there, and that's what I stand on. Well, this book tells you very geniusly, remember that. Look it up and play with that, because as you're building these themes of tradition versus change, understand the the mountain folk are being turned into hillbilly chic, right? Where, where the northerners are trying to appropriate their way of life and make it TV shows and T-shirts and, and change that, right? Like the Beverly Hillbillies TV show is a perfect example of trying to draw attention to it, but you're monopolizing off a way of life you have no idea, the right? And you make them see West Virginia. Yeah, that's another thing, right? We talked about that too. And uh, when you hear that, that's it's so annoying, right? But that that tells you the theme is good because that's what they're trying to fight against, right? If they're living there and they're about that, it's a different way to look at it. However, that is a very mortal perspective, and this book is big. On having you look at that. Where I have an issue is you really don't get a new Tenna tribe perspective yet. Where does the groove fit in? Because the mortal world has always been the mortal world. They're going to do what they do. And the werewolves do get caught up in it. We've seen some tribes take to a war defending a land or a people because they felt it strongly. But we're coming from an angle where, well, I'll just say it. There's a part in here where the Utena, just to hammer home the example... They go with the the Cherokee when they are when they're forced to do the Trail of Tears. Not all of them, but enough to where they're abandoning Cairns to go with them. And I thought to myself, "Oh well, hell, not what I thought about." What did you guys think of that when you read it? I I didn't understand it at all. Like I can, well, I'm not going to say understand it at all, right? Like Nick pointed out earlier, like the the pure ones. Like was more than just like the guru themselves. It was also their kinfolk. But for them to just up and leave their their cairns, like what what was the point of them being there in the first place? Like what is the point of those cairns if you can just? This is not at all at all to say the Trail of Tears was not was not a large thing. That was a process of over twenty years where sixty thousand people were moved across the country. Right. It, it is in by no means a, a small thing to like that. But as to the the purpose of the guru. Like I, I could not wrap my mind around them leaving the Cairns. Yeah, I, well, it, so I mean, they, they threw their hands up, right? It's the only thing you can really say about this. It, and trying to understand why is is really the hard part. You got to think about it maybe uh, 
Trail of Tears was, uh, I, I think, like uh, mid 1800s, a hundred years before that, they they lost an entire tribe, mm-hmm. you know, fighting against this this worm uh, manifestation that popped up and asked them for no help whatsoever. How do you not feel like you're losing a a a fight you can't win? And so here we have that insight. Which, which which has to be crystal clear to everybody. This is one of those great mysteries that's not said, but is said right here. And that is, it was only a century ago they lost an entire tribe. They didn't recover. This is not the Uctena at their best. Mm-hmm. This is them fighting to just exist. And Harano has to be real. Yep. Has to be real. They're sitting here, because they came over here with high hopes. Everything's beautiful. These Native American people, they're perfect. They're, they're exactly the way we want humans. No impergium. They're just going to be themselves and we'll be the spirit brothers to just watch after them and take care of them. This is great. We're just going to do that. And then they saw them begin to infight. Mm-hmm. And then they sensed something existed in the earth that may have been here before. That maybe, maybe the worm is everywhere. Maybe they're wrong. They did that great yeah. distance of travel and then they just... Well, now we got to cleanse it. Yes, it's here. When to go, go about it. Ten to go about it. Croatin fall. Boom. Now their own are feeding on their own and forced to move. And we're not unused to this, right? The worm works like that, sweeping mortals into its biggest weapons. And here this process happens, but it damages the Appalachian area through relationships. Now, it's more insidious than that when you actually get into one aspect. It didn't just do the movement that way. Remember, there are people who stayed behind. And because they didn't get the entire tribe to move at once. Like it took time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like, right. Like I was saying, like a 20 year period. Now, those that stayed behind, there are stories where they thought they would be exempt from having to leave because they owned slaves. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They literally went and bought slaves just like white plantation owners had and worked them the exact same way. And they converted to Christianity. And they learned to speak like impeccable English and dress their way. And they started subjugating their own culture to fit in amongst white folk until, strangely, as they were trying to fit in, there were some white folk that said, we could just enslave Native Americans as well. Now, why did they do that? Well, I'll be honest with you. When I read that, too, in the actual history book, I was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. They had their own. And then, and then they turned around. Why did they do that? Like, what went on? Well, when you look at it, it's nefarious. We're telling you, you got to move. And then you say, no, no, don't take me because I'm like you. We're appropriating culture. Look what we're doing. We're looking to belong. And you're sitting there shaking your head, right? Now, you're a politician way back when, and you're looking at the evil of it. And all I could think of is oily thoughts. Like, they won't move because we said to move. Now they're saying they're going to keep what they have. But the problem is they won't leave because we need that land. We got to think of a way to get them. And some of them elbows them and goes, well, they are kind of dark skinned. Come again? Oh, you know, if blacks are slaves, I mean, they kind of got red skin, right? There's that. Oh, so you mean this guy's kind of comical. Well, they begin heckling and destroying the farmland and the houses they had and burning down the church that they thought they could go to and then bringing up a new one where they're banned from it and all this horrible stuff to the people who stayed behind to make it inhospitable. You know, almost outright, they don't come out and say murder, but you can imagine it happened more than once. Mm. And, And this more than spikes hatred. Because what happens to the initial pull, you then see other tribes try to resist. And the outcome that comes from that. Now, I told you we weren't going to get that into it, but you have to know it because that's where the worm lives. That's how the system worked. Now, how did it work out that way? 
you're going to read in history because I know when you look this up and look at it again, you're going to do what I did. How come none of this shit was mentioned when I was in class? Mm. Right? You weren't told. You were told these are heroes to look up to. Look what, you know, John Adams and everyone. Uh-huh. Why don't you read what some people said and then think about it again? And But got to remember, this book is toward the entertainment of the people that play it. It's not meant to make you shift to Krenos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's not her, not her intent. Why I say that? It's the trap I fell into. I was letting myself get triggered, not by what was in the book, but because they mention a part, and then I went to look it up, and then I said to myself, the question I ask you guys, you know, the author, compla- uh, what is it? the author claims that combining the history with the actual fiction, they're able to make an immersive experience for the audience. Do you feel this book does that, or do you feel that it doesn't make that entertaining? How do you feel about it, that claim? Whew. That's a, well, that, that's a deep question. Um, I think that uh, you could have easily done this book without mentioning any of that, right? I think that, or even, you know, like, like break, that, that's years ago, right? We're, we're playing a modern era game, ideally. But how well do you understand the setting of what you're trying to portray if you don't understand how worn in that pair of jeans is? Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to understand the history of things just to understand, you know, what's going on and, and why there's these deep-seated underlying things. Because I don't think it would take any time at all for me to run an Appalachian game and have Brendan be like, uh, no, not quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I would think I wouldn't have quite that that approach, but uh, <laughs> uh, I think I might I think I might message Bob like in the background like Can you believe this guy like such and such? But anyway, no. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I, I I absolutely agree with with uh, Nick. Like you can um if you were just focusing on like running a modern game, take out any historical aspects to running a game, you can't understand the modern situation without understanding the history of it, right? Like the, the whole, uh, the, one of the biggest themes in this game or one of the biggest showcases is going to be like the, the poverty of the area. And that's going to link back to like all the swaths of land that were, you know, taken from the native Americans, but then bought up by, um, like bigger companies from outside of the region and leaning more to that, that carpet bagger, like talk we had earlier. Right, it's yeah. all going to feed into itself. Now, what I said before is I can't believe this is here, right? Because we're coming off that Chechnya high, where it was like, <laughs> "Oh man, burn the book." Well, when you look at this, she she does a, a hell of a job taking on a challenge that's fearlessly that was well researched uh-huh. and what she had going on, and she she was as gentle as she could be to bring it up by still doing due diligence to bring you into it to how. Maybe you should not go as deep into it as all that, but you should still remember that the the hate sources, the bad stuff comes from somewhere. Not all the conflict is worm, right? This book does do that, where it wants to try to tell you all these bad choices and decisions, a lot of them were worm influenced, and that's where the fiction comes in. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, me neither. I I think if you have some bitch... That was some bitch in real life. Let him stand in his own too. Mm-hmm. And then let my guru character encounter him so I can end that problem. Mm-hmm. Right? I want the purity of cleansing that for me. And just to, like I saw this, the tagline of Werewolf a lot, a powerful one, is called When Will You Rage? And oh man, was I rage filled. Mm-hmm. 
right, going through this, not at her, right, not at her. Here I am walking around this whole time. Some stuff I thought I knew well, some I didn't. And then she's putting in perspective, right? There's a, I'll come clean with it. There was a time when I, I remember going through with Nick and we went to go visit you, Brenton, your neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. And we were outside of a Waffle House. And we saw some people that were like, man, like, don't they know they're in public? Like, that's a little cut in corners, right? <laughs> and how they choose to be and behave. And not everybody has their best day being in public. Mm-hmm. But everyone's had that, you know, laundry day look. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Now that but, you say that, I'm right on board with you. But I didn't think of laundry day, right? I honestly bigotedly thought, oh, we're down south. Uh. We're real down south. We'll just deal with it. You know, it's just not their best day, but whatever. But then I forgot that I remember being in Mountain Home. And dealing with people who wouldn't step outside the door if they didn't have a chance to freshen up. Right? That was, that was a thing. And then, you know, it's a different time. It's a different place. And, you know, I chastised myself a bit in that thought. And then reading this, I was like, oh, man, this is, whew, this is a good book for that. You know what I mean? Like, when I, when I thought about it, I was like, going, when will you rage? She didn't have to say it. Mm-hmm. You should already be there. Right? There's, there's tons of story to bring that up and get it into it. And... The world we're just talking about when she wrote that was actual when, and, you know, with a mix of when she slowly introduced the world there. So when she gets to the point of like, what's in here that you're going to find that's gothic punk, she's referring to the 1920s, really, where it starts getting a spin, where things are settling and kind of developing. And you're getting those big cities, but you still have those rural areas that are hard to reach. And it's because they're forgotten hollows and, uh, and, and caves, holler, excuse me, and cave systems and different places where ancient quote-unquote gods might have been worshipped mm-hmm. or different things were tended to and it's the world of darkness naturally there's a power there that resonates and you shouldn't go up there alone or at all depending on the community that you're in or allowed to be at that spooky story of, about the appalachians can actually be told uh there's a there's a great podcast brunch when he turned me on to you remember the name uh old gods of appalachia yeah the old gods of appalachia man i kept hearing that music yeah and that tagline the entire time I'm reading this, mm-hmm. going over a lot of their stories where it, it's kind of chilling. If you're a horror fan, check out that podcast. Absolutely. Like, le- like legitimately to read this, it's a good accompaniment for a source of pulling that uh, kind of writing what she's talking mm-hmm. about. Forgotten places and spooky stories. But I do digress a bit because the point of this book is is how would you use it, right? And And after kind of checking it out, guys, and getting into it, do you agree or disagree with her intent? on using the Gothic Punk 20s as kind of the way to fast forward it and just use it as a backdrop historically. And what I mean by that is you got to put villainy, stuff to defeat, cairns to operate. Do you feel there has to be a hard focus in the history or do you think that it could be something overlooked and introduced to players and character from an NPC perspective? Like, in other words, should there be a throttling that you have control of or do you let players dive into history and come at you uh, with that background? I think you should be aware of the background uh, a, a lot. I mean, if you expect to, if you're going to run a setting in a place like this, and and your players are going to do more research into it than you did in in, in your own setting, and and write those interesting backgrounds, um, when you see that interesting background, and it brings up those things of the past, you damn well better brief yourself on it. Um, so I think really what she's doing here is she's prepping you know people uh, for the setting mm-hmm. and I, I don't see a huge problem with that and, and, I, and i don't at all 
I know that at all. I'm, I'm going to agree with that. Brent, Sean, what about you? Um, I, I know we've talked like uh, a hell of a lot about the the history of it, and I of course agree with both of you on on the importance of it in running the like any game set in this area. But I do want to highlight that she does a this book does a great job of also describing like the the modern setting as well. One of the things that stuck out to me the most was that it was talking about how. Um, like even a silver fang or and a bonar, you know, of two different tribes up in like, you know, the the Knoxville Cairn, they might be more willing to like work with each other, more distrustful of outsiders, even of their own tribe. Right. There is mm-hmm. a, a sense of isolation and um and stubbornness that will conflict with their own like, you know, uh uh pride and like self reliance. Right. And that I think this book does a, a damn good job of like uh, hammering that home. Yep. And that being said, let's get to the fun part. Werewolf stuff is werewolf stuff, and it is good. Mm-hmm. And the interesting character, and what by good, you could there's use here. That's what I'm saying. Um, when you get to those characters, though, what's one of your favorites, guys, uh, that you could mention out of this book? And we'll start with Brent Charm. <laughs> I, I've got to admit, the favorite where my favorite werewolf out of this book is. Um, I was actually. Up until this moment, I was actually going to say Forest Runner, that red talon, like Master of the yeah. Right in the Tennessee Cairn, but I'm switching it the last minute. My favorite one was Heart of the Trillium, same Cairn, but she's like the 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 den mother and like head warder of her Cairn, solely because she is a silver fang grandmother to the to the Cairn, and I can understand like I know Wormfoe is the is the sept alpha of that Cairn. She's the one that runs it, no doubt in my mind. I know, I know that setting. I know what that Karen's like. <laughs> She's the one that's in charge. It's a matriarch easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about you, Dave? Um, man, I, I I don't know if I have if I have like a, a favorite one, like you know, like one that would like just speak out to me, like I gotta play this person. Um, but they do have great stories in here, and uh, and one of the good stories I think is uh is Little Eyes of the Forest and Knower of Secrets. Yep, that's the full name. It's that long. Um, she's a, uh, she's a get a Fenris lupus, um, that as a pup, uh, she was, uh, she was bartered for by a Tremere and that, that Tremere then, you know, like fed her and blood bonded her, uh, making a ghoul wolf, not necessarily a bad idea. If you're, if you're a local Tremere, um, the, the unfortunate part is, is that this wasn't just normal wolf. This was a get a Fenris, um, and, and it was a guru, um, so at some point in time, you know, like some hunters come in and try to thrash this guy's haven, and uh, and this 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 wolf barking at the door gets stabbed by a by a silver, and uh, and then proceeds to go Krenos and tear these people apart. Tremere, twinkling his fingers, <laughs> loves this. This couldn't be better. <laughs> I, you mean to tell me I have a fully blood bound werewolf? Oh, this is great. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, she's she's still you know, fully blood bond to, to a, a vampire. So she's going to have to, you know, like do, do the kind of things that, that he wants her to do. And he's a Tremere. So he has no end of degradation to the things that he will make his new toy do. Um, just because I enjoy it. Um, and, and we all know what happens when you abuse that blood bond over a period of time. Eventually she runs into another guru, you know, she has that moment of clarity. Let's slip what's going on. He's like, 
I got you, boo. They raid in there. They all hold her down while he rips the heart out of the Tremere and breaks that bond. And forever you have this loyal, brutal enforcer, get a Fenris lady who is just the baddest of the bad. Man, how does Grandpa Fenris feel about this, Nick? Well, I know uh, there's some there's some folks inside the uh, the Fenris camp that would that would probably have an idea of one should free themselves through their own ferocity, but um, hmm. I, uh, I I don't think that uh, that they even address that in, in this kind of a thing. Uh, more or less, uh, to say that she's uh, in any way uh, like uh, a raised and true um, uh, get a Fenris, like came from kinfolk, was raised amongst kinfolk and trained in the ways. Um, that that's not what you're getting here, but that doesn't stop her determination and and ability to prove herself even amongst all that because there's no amount of abuse you can take from a, a vampire without you know courting yourself into a hardened piece of steel you know over time even if even if your will is being slammed to the ground what i'm towing around is that i was i was lost and completely cut away lost adrift at sea when I read about a pacifist get a Fenris. Maybe you can convince our listeners that it's worthwhile, but I read this, man, and I was just... Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to let Nick talk about it, because, uh, I mean, Nick, you like this. I mean, you... Well, I, like, maybe I'm wrong, but, like... Uh, I, uh, help us out here. I don't know what to think of it, right? So, um, we have Ruben, Earth Defender Bruckner, uh, son of Ulrich Vengeance of Odin, whose whose father died young um doing doing what what people named Ulfric uh like <laughs> defender of Odin uh you know died doing and uh so this he was raised by his his grandpa uh and uncle who were staunch Quakers and uh and staunch pacifists that making uh, oatmeal making oatmeal for days fancy bow ties weird hats you name it and, uh, and and what they did was they uh, they, they built in this guy the aspects I guess of a get a Fenris that you could that you could understand right like he's got that uh, that no BS attitude about him you know and okay. this is how we do things and that's how they're done because well that's how we do things and I won't hear nothing more about it and uh, and damn it if you're gonna have a barn you build it with your own two hands like you should because that's the way that God says we should. You know, it's this very down to earth, like, uh, like, you know, like you would expect out of a, a curmudgeonly old man. But when it comes to like the get a Fenris riling up, like we're grabbing our hammers and we're going to get some worm. He's like, ain't you got better things to do? Like maybe contemplate uh, the the sins of your life. You know, just kind of like, whoa, buddy, <laughs> what's going on here? Get yourself square. The cantankerous wet blanket of Fenris. That's a, that's a role I hadn't thought of. Uh, but he exists. And, you know, it'd be fun to role play. I just couldn't believe I read it. And uh, But to tell you about a character I do like, and it's just a photo. I can't stop looking at it. It's it's like something I'd want on my wall framed. They got a great picture of a Boggin who looks larger than the outhouse he's laying by on a hill. And he's drinking, he's drinking like, I don't know. I'm, I like to imagine it's a sarsaparilla, right? <laughs> It's like it's like it's like a giant size sarsaparilla. He's got a couple bottles. He's gonna knock back. He's got that cute little chubby legs. His little belly's pooched out. He's got that just a just a belt of tools as he's just kicking back after a hard day. And I don't know why he's buying an outhouse, but maybe 
maybe he's going to fix that too. And that's just, <laughs> it's, it's on the agenda and I adored it because this book has an outstanding uh, changeling setup mm-hmm. for it to, to roll right into it, right? Now, I know you may have raged across and all that, but it's so cool to read how she just she just rolls into it, right? That, okay, those are the wolves, but let's get to the other people that are in this area. And the Chainling are just one example. Uh, what others are here? Um, they have a very interesting branch of the, uh, the Changelings that kind of are native to this area uh, called the Nunahi. And what they are is uh it, it's much like like you would expect like native native peoples but they're they're kind of like um uh i i guess like almost uh children of the of the, of the forest and, and child is not the right term because you know they don't look like children but they're they're fey people that seem to be like integrated changelings not not just like like full-blown fey but you know fey folk and uh it's and they're called little people mm-hmm. i remember seeing that too they they do have little people, which is a another another branch of of them, um, and uh, and those those are actually where things get interesting, to be honest with you. But they are they are people that that are disconnected from the dreaming, uh, and they they just they have no connection to the dreaming like the normal fae do. Like when all the when all the fae came over, um, you know, with all the other you know people who migrated over um, on the boats and stuff. They, uh, they, they were kind of already here, and, uh, and and they didn't know what to think about them, uh, and, and obviously, you know, these people pull their glamour from the beauty of nature, uh, seemingly like the awe of creation, and uh, and and that uh, that allows them to kind of have like a different reaction. They they have the ability to uh, through bunks like uh, sidestep into the umbra, kind of cool, weird, interesting things like that. Um, they have a very tied to the land feel about them. Um, a lot of their uh, stuff is tied into like uh, the native tribes uh, traditions that that we know from from the modern day. Now, well, that's them, and that's uh, that's that's a distinct cousin of the Fey Easily. Um, we also know that you'll see the Nunahe later on as well, um, in, in other books, and you'll see it's sort of a different take. Where like here they're more of already here. This is where they originate. Others kind of see them as a almost like a household fay version where they they take. It's like you take care of the land, they take care of you. But if you don't, no end of mischief, right? Mm. That's that's kind of their end, and that's where it works. And there's a lot of folklore with that too, which I think is awesome to to read about here as well. But we're talking about Garal, right? That's from getting that too. Like oh. you know, you don't have oh, just yeah. changing, <laughs> right? So you also have yeah, the wall that are breeds, here. Right. <laughs> right. So you're yeah, gonna go we'll go all out, right? Grawler are mentioned here. Cougars, you have uh, um, Jaguars yeah, and Anasis. Jaguars. Um the Ananasis an interesting take. Um I say interesting because uh I'll be honest, that threw me a curve. I thought I knew exactly where the Ananasi were introduced, and it was not this book. Shocker. I was wrong, and I'm kinda happy about it, you know, and there it is. Yep. Um However, it's kind of like a staging ground. It's like a who's who um, cast that is thrown in there for various stories to tell uh, that you have around here, which makes this book, pound for pound, one of these best books to introduce some pretty quirky NPCs or even if you have characters who are going to kind of help out in the Appalachian area that are not typical. What I mean by that is 
you may run like a Vancouver by night for Rage or whatever, you know, Rage by Vancouver or whatever, and you're going to deal with the, you know, vampires there and whatnot. But someone's like, I want to play Garou. And you're like, hell no. Like, you got werewolves, like, whatever. <laughs> Appalachia, thumbs up. Yeah. Right? Why wouldn't you? Of course you are. Yep. Mountains are big. A lot, of, a lot of ranged places for them to be, and that's a good connect. They have interesting ways to do it, too, that are in there. It makes that a, a sing, a sing-in. I don't know why I said song, but you can sing yourself a tune. Anyway. Um, but I got really excited about the changeling aspect of uh-huh. it. And I still am. I still think because if you're looking for a happy tuned game to have like just rip roaring good time messing with who? Well, that would be tourists and other people who come in here thinking they're going to, you know, remember what I said, your way of life's going to be messed with and they don't think they have to respect anything. I can't think of any group than the fate to remind them they're dead wrong, right? That it's now, you know, without killing them, here's another way to go around that or adventures to go on, you know, big city exploration and stuff that you can do there this is a lot of fun mixing it up with werewolves too fate and werewolf is a shoe in look at the fiana they almost beg for that to happen tons of ways to do it bonar is kicking right you got it all in this book that fits nice a lot of you've been asking how do you combine these different uh genres together and i want you to see the trick she did she went deep enough in the history and pulled what you already know, or at least can reference. Mm. And she begs you to get into it. And then she comes out and says, well, here's what you can include in the area, because they all have a history I'm going to tie in here. And she does this nice symphony of tying them in. I say symphony. It is a work art that she throws out there to have them here and tether them here realistically. I'm big on having a, oh, okay, I can see that being here. And thanks to Nick and Brennan, they even helped me realize, because at first I was like, oh, the worm was already here. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you got guy where the worm just originated from nowhere, and uh, I forgot about the croton. Mm-hmm. I didn't include that in, but Nick had a beautiful, like, fucking a set and spike, right? As I'm going to call that about, oh, yeah, that depression, that's why the lieutenant were neutered. That, that explains it, right, without it having to be explained. And that's what makes it work for me. But when you put all those pieces together, uh, this book is not one to sleep on. It's one to check out, but just remember to be careful as you do. Um, but we're going to get to the uh, the end here by saying one thing. Um do you feel the villains mentioned in this book do justice to it? Ooh, I'm going to leave that one for Brendan first. <laughs> hmm. So, uh, the villains, the, the straight up werewolf antagonists that are listed back here, like, uh, I'm not going to lie. When you said the villains that were, that were described here, I was thinking like, all right, well, you got like the people that have been exploiting all the land that they were coming up with, right? Like all the people that are, stri- oh, you meant the black fear, like the black spiral dancers. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> just because they're not what I focused on. Um, but yes, I, I, I do like them. The Bledsoe's. I'll be I'll be upfront with both of you right now. I started reading the Bledsoe's. I got I got kind of mad. I was like, you said you promised me at the book they weren't making fun of like hillbillies, right? They were they were like showing like the bad <laughs> stereotypes, but they were actually like uh, this is what it's like. But as I started reading the Bledsoe's, I was like, actually, actually, I can kind of see this. Okay, this is like a very wrong turn esque situation, but uh, I can I can dig it. Yeah, it gets very hills have eyes and 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 stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, so what are the blood sons? Is it blood sons? I thought it was blood sows. The blood sons are what you would, uh, I'd call them a Fomori clan up, uh, up out uh, near the holler uh, that, um, well, they make their money through moonshining, 
right? I think they've got this, uh, I, I love the name for this, the Blackfire Whiskey. That's uh, <laughs> 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 it's pretty apropos for the, the corruption. I'm sure they're spreading with it. But um, more than just uh, uh, Moonshiners, like I said earlier, these are a uh, pretty macabre uh, Fomori clan. Every mem- every male member, and I do believe um, some females are inducted. No, it is actually all males on their 16th birthday. It is their rite of passage, right? You know, when they become men at the ripe old age of, uh, of 16, they go through this uh, small ritual. They take them to their family, you know, swimming hole. Every, everyone's got them over here, only this one is uh, blatantly, like, defiled more than... Um, just the trash that litters it, the water itself is like oily and dark. And the reason why this stuck out to me is because I've been exactly to where these people have lived before. I know this place, a place called like Eagle Creek over near, um, over near Knoxville. <laughs> Whenever there's a heavy rain, the, the land itself will actually seep with oil. Uh, that's, that's how like close to the surface, like oil reserves are up there. So I can totally see a place like this actually existing. But more than that, um, <clears throat> they blindfold them, uh, gag them, and uh, they take them out to uh, this pond, and they tell them to jump. I, I'm not entirely sure how they figure out where to jump to because they're blindfolded, and they didn't say they ever take it off, but I can see that being part of the ritual. I'll help you. The ritual is pretty sinister. When they take them up there, they bring them to the edge of it, and they tell them to go ahead and jump, and if they hesitate, they set them on fire. With the moonshine. Exactly. <laughs> With the moon. They set them on fire. And as they're screaming, they certainly jump forward into the water. But it's what's in the water waiting for them. Right? That's yep. the It's uh it is a bane, if I be- if I remember correctly. It's actually like a perverse like reflection of Uktena itself, like a mockery of it. It's it's bad. The worm. <laughs> what was that, Nick? You muffled even to me, man. What was you only adopted the worm. I was molded <laughs> by it, raised by it. Not that pain. Not that pain. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> no, uh, the uh, the cool process about this is that it it, it implies that you read Freak Legion, right? The Fomori mm-hmm. book, and you understand that these uh, there's different ways to make certain families of, of Fomori. This is theirs. Uh, but what they tie into this is that the terror of you jump, even if you jump in willingly, there's something that's going to grab you to slowly possess you, nearly hollow you out to only bond itself to what's needed to be kept to make you a bloodsome or an actual Fomori there. And then you have a horrible existence of, of slowly getting cancer till you're dead, but regenerating the entire time you do mm-hmm. uh, to be like, well, rem- that's an agony I wouldn't wish on anyone, but they're urge to go forward and while well, you mentioned there were females in the clan uh, to propagate the species until until they can't anymore due to the cancer and then to run forth and die uh, in the name of the worm. Terrible villain, right, in that regard just to do, but that's that's the worm. It's what it does. And uh, it's that's why it's got to be stopped and, and all the right reasons. By far not the only one. Now real quick, I want to mention the Black Spiral Dancers because, excuse me, the Black Spiral Square Dancers. dancers. <laughs> uh, here's why because the black spiral square dancers have one of the coolest named black spiral dancers ever right it's screaming joe huckster brother of madness right has a band now why do i love that so much i'm a sucker for a good name and i'm a sucker for good art i love the picture of them 
He looks like the rockabilly guy you never wanted to meet backstage. The Snake Eyes, they do a good job of having it on there, of him pulling his shades up. You might have went to his concert. And this is a guy who has a serious issue when he gets quiet. He can't stand it. And what he might do to, to occupy the noise is a whole lot. Well, let's hope he sticks to singing, right? That's your only hope. But in case he can't, he's got friends like the Arun bass player Pete Roach, the slime sucker, Therge Fiddler Ray Allen Gantry, otherwise known as Sleeps With Trash, and the mandolin player Tiny Bob White, a 300-pound hairless menace ragabash. This is his band and his group, the Black Sprout Square Dancers. I, uh... I've heard people try to make fun of this, and all i got to say to you is there's a certain feel of the first Ed where there's a tongue-in-cheek humor behind a dark facade, Mm -hmm. and I think that's a black dog influence, where they kind of want you to joke a little bit because that makes the screaming so much sweeter. And (laughs) that's they remind me of that. Between the Blood Sons and these guys, you definitely have your, your card stacked against you for what's back here, and it's just the taste of it. That's not uh, even that's not even the coolest thing, man. Like they have a, a section here, and and I love it, love it, love it. Every time they do this in a book, they take local folklore and they twist it into a world of darkness entity. Uh, they did that here with a lot of native folklores, um, with the uh, the Raven Mockers, which are these spiritual vampires uh, spirits that were uh, that feast of that feasted upon vampiric blood and now they feast upon uh you know like people that are that are dying and uh they uh they have the i don't even know how to pronounce it but we're going to say it's the slant-eyed giant of the mountains you know it's kind of this uh, this spirit that wanders in the umbra and uh and he's a bit of a recluse but you know a protector some kind of umbral manifestation they have will of the wisps they call them fire carriers in here, but we all know what a will of the wisp will do to you. You know they're gonna they're gonna catch your eye at night, catch your attention, get you wandering off somewhere, and put you somewhere you don't want to be. What we're talking here is that they got monsters they include in here. Let me just tell you a secret about this book. She included everything in the kitchen sink, right? We can't possibly talk about all, which is why it's shocked that Nick went into that because mm-hmm. it's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. We'll just say that if it was made in a genre and threw it in a book except for Mummy, I didn't catch one. <laughs> that's about the only thing I didn't catch in this book. And uh, that's, uh, I guess, uh, a deep breath right, in relief. But that's yep. that's rage across the Appalachians, folks. I think it's a worthwhile uh, to pick up to enjoy, especially if you use it in the ways that, uh, well, obviously I'm going to like the way I use it. You like it the way you have it. Um, but I caution you, it's easy to go into the muck and mire and make this a uh, something to, to rail about. And it was this 95, you know, it's not, it's not there. And um, we got to remember, folks, the author is, is is someone who's very talented and influential in a lot of the things that you love. And writes uh, many, many good books, not just this one, uh, that came up for that in that regard. Um, we're not in any way trying to, to say that this book should be your favorite or that it shouldn't be talked about and that you shouldn't feel some type of way. Um, in fact, we're never going to say that, right? There's no way for us to actually make that claim. Uh, but Jackie Casada did pass away from COVID-19. Uh, we do acknowledge that uh, here at 25 and we wish your family the best. Uh, but more importantly, we, we, you know, we hope that name lives on uh, as being impactful uh, for everybody else in, in her works. And we know this impacted us and we hope you enjoyed it. Um, thank you, Brennan. Thank you, Nick. Always a joy. And uh, we will next week. Yeah, my brain fried there. Uh, <laughs> next week we jump into Requiem. And uh, thanks again.
Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM at our email info at 25 years VTM.com on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25 years VTM or on our website www.25yearsvtm.com If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade.